Hello, I'm Damien Venuto. It's October 27th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. It's no secret the media loves to focus on crime, with robberies and violence grabbing easy headlines across the nation. But there's a bigger crime epidemic in this country, one that's taking place closer to home. Domestic violence remains deeply rooted in New Zealand life, and it's taking more lives than many of us realise. On average, a child is killed in the home every five weeks. And this is on top of the many New Zealanders who suffer abuse on a near daily basis. So how bad is domestic violence in New Zealand? Are we doing enough to stop it? And why don't we like to talk about it as much as other crimes? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Janet Fanslow, Associate Professor from the University of Auckland for a discussion about the crime crisis that no one's talking about. Janet, recently we've seen headlines about Nawa Himiana, a 35-year-old mother who was stabbed to death by her partner in front of her children. We also saw reports about the death of 5-year-old Malachi Subex and how the system failed him. These are just two victims of many due to domestic violence and child abuse in this country. So why does this keep happening in New Zealand? I think it keeps happening because historically most of our money and investment has gone in terms of responding to violence after the fact. And it's only very recently that we've started to have conversations about how we work in the prevention space. And we haven't got those initiatives off the ground yet. You've been researching this crisis for years. So how severe is domestic violence in Aotearoa at the moment? Who are the main victims? How common is this problem? And is it getting worse? So the current statistics are that the police attend about 130,000 cases of family violence a year. At the population level, we're looking at a problem that affects about one in three women in their lifetime. and there's a high crossover between violence that happens against women in partnerships and child abuse and neglect. Those numbers are absolutely shocking, yet a lot of the focus that we've seen in the media and coming from politicians recently has been on gangs and ram raids. So why are the public and politicians so much more focused on that than a crisis that takes the life of a child every five weeks? I think part of the problem is that people get a a sense of despair and inevitability around the problems of family and sexual violence and think that there really isn't anything that we can do about it. And so they just stop trying. And the evidence is actually really in the other direction. Family and sexual violence are very much preventable problems, but we actually need to work on investing in those solutions. And I think people focus on the other things because I don't know, they're more high profile, they're more visible, and that's possibly where the media turns their attention. But if we were to have a more sustained focus on problems of intimate partner violence and child abuse and neglect, we could get somewhere. Now, the numbers that you quoted, they obviously deal with reported cases of domestic violence. But how much of this goes unreported? Has your research shown any figures in regard to how much goes unreported? So the statistics around the police, that's an example of some of the reported data. 
And people talk about that as being roughly 20% of what may actually be happening in the community. The research that I do, which talks about the population-based prevalence of family violence, where the statistics about one in three women will experience physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner in her lifetime, that comes from really solid population-based research. So we're thinking that's either a pretty close figure or a somewhat of an underestimate. Janet, the pandemic saw many of us closed off in our homes for extended periods of time. What impact did this have on families that are vulnerable to domestic violence? At the time, I think people were really talking about it as kind of an escalation or an intensification of problems that might already have been there. So it isn't necessarily that a whole lot of new cases started, but it may have given abusers some more tactics and some more strategies that they could use to limit people's ability to get help. What are some of the more common types of domestic violence that we are seeing in New Zealand at the moment? Like everywhere else, I think it's a whole range of different strategies and tactics that abusers use against women. So it can be physical violence, it can be sexual violence, it can be psychological abuse, which includes humiliation and threats. It can be economic abuse, it can be a whole lot of controlling behaviors and limiting people's contact with family and friends. So part of the challenge around it is it's quite insidious and it can take a whole lot of different shapes. For those of us who don't necessarily understand the nature of domestic violence and what it looks like, could you give us a sense of what domestic violence looks like to the people who are suffering it on a daily basis? It can, again, have some variations. For some people, it's kind of a chronic grind and always a fear, that walking on eggshells sense about never knowing, you know, when something they do, that the abuser is going to use it as an excuse for a violent episode. So it can create constant worry. It can create a real sense of loss of self, you know, loss of self-confidence. For some people, it can also be a, a mix where it alternates, where sometimes the abuser can treat them really well and kind of make them feel like queen of the world. And then it gets punctuated with horrible instances of, you know, of nasty and abusive behavior. And that kind of hot and cold nature of it can really do people's heads in. I suppose that's also the challenge because a family member might phone the police, the police arrives, and then a few days later, you you get the warmer side of that person coming through again, and then any action that the police was going to take falls away, essentially, right? Yeah, or that if the police don't take strategic and strong action at the time, then the abuser can often come in and put so many threats around the woman for reporting about threats to take her children away or cause her problems in other ways that it's harder for her to go forward. So we do really need those strong proactive responses from police. What does the research show around child abuse? Why are we seeing so many children die at the hands of their family members? These are the people that are meant to love them the most in the world. Yeah, I think one of the challenges around child abuse is that we often see it as disconnected and separate from the intimate partner violence, where oftentimes they go hand in hand within families. And 
if we were to develop a more integrated response around working within the whole family system, finding out who that child might be safe and protected by, and work to keep that child safe and together with the non-abusing parent, while also putting strategies in around containing the behavior of the person who's doing the abuse, that would get us somewhere. But at the moment, we have quite separate strategies and quite separate responses, often you know, thinking about how we deal with the child abuse separately without recognizing the intimate partner violence. And I suppose it's also a very responsive approach that we have at the moment rather than prevention, right? So when something happens, we call the police and the police comes and then they do something in the moment and then there's nothing done to prevent it from happening again. Right. And there is a whole range of more community-based, more positive strength-building strategies that have proven to be really effective internationally that we have yet to get off the ground here. Any discussion about domestic violence is impossible without mentioning alcohol and gambling. So how do these vices contribute to making this issue worse? Um, I think alcohol is often considered an excuse or a causal factor around violence. Again, while it may intensify things, it's not a cause. Use of violence is a choice that's being made by the person who is using the violence. So I think we always have to be really careful that we don't buy into the idea that there are external factors like alcohol. People may need help to deal with their alcohol, but they still need help to deal with the violence quite directly as its own thing. Yeah, it's almost a case of using the alcohol as an apology. He was drunk and that's why he did that. He would never do that if he was sober, but the reality is that he still did that and that's what we need to focus on. Right, because otherwise we use the alcohol and the other factors as an excuse for him and it just means we collude with his behavior. In recent media stories, we've also seen a growing trend of money being used to control victims. So how does this more insidious form of domestic violence play out? And does it contribute to the fear that victims often have when it comes to speaking out? I think it's actually relatively new that we've started to talk about it. There's an idea called employment sabotage. So some of the ways it takes place is that, you know, abusers interfere with um, women's ability to, you know, to get or keep jobs. And it can be things like repeatedly failing to turn up to do their piece of childcare or when they promised that they would or beating her before she has a big day of work. It can be things like economic control about really monitoring or restricting women's ability to access or use money. Or it can be things like economic exploitation, which is really about coercing women to work or coercing them to give up money or actually even running up debt in victims' names. So we have a lot more education that we need to do about helping women understand that that is part of the abusive picture. But we also have a lot more to do about how we structure employment and women's access to money in the world anyway, without those gendered expectations that makes it harder for men to do those behaviors. I suppose the other manipulative thing that the abuser might do is use the children and the control of money to make the woman stay in that relationship, even when she knows it's not the right thing for her or her children. Because if she can't support the children by herself, then that creates an environment that she has to stay in or that she believes that she has to stay in. Yeah, very much so. And the other way it can play out is even when women do choose to separate, 
then it is sadly all too possible for abusers to weaponize use of agencies that are supposed to help, like the family court, to actually constantly keep women in situations where they're constantly trying to mount legal challenges, etc., which really do interfere with women's ability to live autonomous lives. We have seen ad campaigns in the past that try to draw more attention to this issue, and recently there have even been suggestions that the All Blacks should front these campaigns. Would that have any impact whatsoever? Well, the All Blacks are held up as icons for the nation, and those sorts of campaigns might hold water if we actually followed it through with making sure that the All Blacks that are in the campaigns are behaving in ways that are respectful to their partners and not excusing people if they just happen to use violence against their partners, okay? Violence is always a choice. So those campaigns could only possibly have value if we were actually serious about having serious consequences for everyone who uses violence, whether they're sporting heroes, whether they're high-profile businessmen. We need to make sure that we walk the talk. What is the government doing to address the long-term issue of domestic violence? Actually, this government has invested quite a bit in the area around addressing family and sexual violence. So I think it was something like $114 that was invested into the area in this last budget and over $100 in the budget the year before which has been awesome and really signals a government's priority around it. They've also been putting together a new national strategy around the prevention of family and sexual violence, and they've been working on building um, a stronger infrastructure around it. But part of the challenge is that that money, a lot of it's kind of remedial to prop up services that have been really underfunded for a lot of years. So it's important, but we have a ways to go yet. Janet, having studied this issue for decades, uh, do you have any hope of things improving for the victims of domestic family violence in this country? And what would you like to see done? The number one thing that I would like to see done is having a stronger um, science and evidence platform built into the activities and the plans that are being developed at the moment. Just like we saw with the country's COVID response, Building it off that basis of science and evidence was a crucial factor in having countrywide success and countrywide buy-in. And at the moment, we still treat this family and sexual violence as issues that we can just kind of deal with off the cuff with ideas that you know people think might be effective, when in fact there is actually a really strong and developing international and local evidence base that we could be pulling from to make our activities more effective. And if we were to do that, then I would have a lot more hope for how we how we move things going forward. And other countries and other places have certainly seen some spectacular successes in terms of real community-based strategies that have seen you know, 50% reductions in perpetration of intimate partner violence in four years. 
okay, in really short periods of time. But we actually need to have the science walk alongside the community knowledge and the expertise that we have in this country to build what will work here. Thanks for joining us today, Janet. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and edited by Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.